All right, all right, everybody. Hope you're doing well. Stefan Molyneux, it is the 1st of November 2019, and I hope you're having a wonderful day. Thank you to everyone who wants to join in the show. Great to see you. Great to chat with you. And without any further ado, I will just wait for the screening. Actually, oh, okay, one, one tiny further ado. One teeny, teeny, tiny further ado. Which is, boy, you know, it doesn't seem like this Jeffrey Epstein thing is going to move forward at all. And a couple of thoughts I have about that. I saw a tweet today, like, formerly the best hider in the world. And it was like Waldo from Where's Waldo? And then there was a picture of now the new winner, Ghislaine Maxwell, man, she's not being talked to, nothing's going on, there doesn't seem to be any further investigation. And what that leads me to believe, my friend, what that leads me to believe is that the people who are in law enforcement, they think or accept that it was a murder. And I think that's one of the main reasons why they don't want to look further because they don't want to join Jeffrey Epstein's mangled corpse in the graveyard of, whoops, had a bit too much dirt on powerful people now. So it's just another confirmation to me that, I mean, there is great evil in the world and it will stop at nothing to protect itself and no one is safe even in prison. And uh, accountability, well, it increasingly appears that it is a, a thing for the afterlife and not necessarily for this world itself. All right. So we've got some callers, given that this is going to be a call-in show. And I'm sorry it took a while to get back to this. I kind of missed you guys, but I wanted to um, uh, get into this. So let's talk to uh, Jack. Uh, Jack is uh, this failure to launch phenomenon. Jack, are you, uh, are you on the air? Yeah, I'm here. How are you? I'm very well. How are you doing? Oh, okay, complain. Well, now you should complain because this is the philosophy show where complaints are gracefully and gratefully accepted. So what's on your mind? Fair enough. Well, um, yeah, like I said in my message, I'm uh, in my early 30s and I don't function in a lot of ways. Um, I've struggled to hold on to a job. Uh, I have like I've been diagnosed with uh, a pretty severe social anxiety disorder. I don't really date I'm just kind of an example of like the millennials that don't really, you know, move on and into adulthood properly. And I'm just wondering, like, how I can fix this. It's a great question. And uh, I really, really appreciate you bringing this up. So what do you do? I mean, do you work? What do you, what do, you do with your time? Uh, unfortunately, like I, I do work. It's just the hours are pretty spotty and I have a hard time holding on to a job for long. So I go through sometimes month long periods where like I'm just out of work. So I spent a lot of time like, you know, on the internet playing video games uh, and just like things that aren't very productive and that are actually destructive for me. So yeah, like yeah, I'm video games gives you like a, it gives you like a dopamine hit and you can bleed away hours or days, but it does leave you with a kind of sense of emptiness, right? Like time's ticking along one, one day closer to death. And you know, I just, I got another high score if you even did. So it is a real trick. You know, they, they aren't a real achievement as pornography is to having a family, right? It's, it's mere the, the illusion yeah. of the instigation, but not actually achieving it. So when did you first begin to worry about this, your life, and so on? Um, I guess it was, I was probably in my late teens. Uh, like, I, I grew up in a household where my mom 
um, she's been she's been disabled pretty much as long as I can remember um, because of like the way she was raised in terms of abuse and that kind of stuff. Uh, she has like post-traumatic stress disorder. So I just, I kind of came up in a house where like not working was kind of normal for like my mom and like the, the way it worked out just like with her and my dad, like my dad's a total psycho. Um, and he, like definitely, he, he you know, he, he never really beat me up or, or anything like that, but he did crush my, I guess, my self-esteem when I was really young by like calling but me names did, uh, and sorry, Jack, you know, saying how, I'd never... Sorry, can you, uh, how, did he, how did he do that? Sure. What steps did he take to achieve that? Well, like mostly it was like verbal abuse. Um, so he, he'd say things like, you know, you're never going to achieve anything. Like, you're not very smart, are you? Like, he, he would just, he would really go out of his way to crush me because I wasn't doing well in school or like I wasn't as good at sports as the other kids and stuff like that. Right. Now, when you don't want the life that your parents have, you have a big challenge, an opportunity to, to break the cycle. But do you believe that if you go out and sort of seize life that you might turn into your dad or your mom? Honestly, no, I, I don't think so. Um, especially not turning into my dad. I'm, I almost couldn't be more different from him. So what stands between you and seizing the day? What's in the way? Well, I, I've tried before. Like, like I mentioned before, I, uh, like I've had different jobs, but I, I, don't have, I don't have much ability to like stick to things when things get tough. I don't have much discipline. Um, and so the problem is, is like, you know, if something goes wrong at, the, at a job I have, like usually what I'll end up doing is I'll just quit or, you know, I'll start missing days and then it, it kind of just snowballs to the point where well, like so, I end up so unemployed. Me, sorry, sorry, give me, give me a concrete example of something that went wrong at a job that you wanted to quit or you did quit. Sure. Well, uh, like I was doing a construction job a few years ago and my best friend at the time, he was the one that got me that job. And he ended up having a, a problem with one of the bosses because of something he was doing. When he got fired, like I felt alone and like I, and I don't know, like I started my uh, performance at the job kind of dipped and like it just, things just kept getting worse and worse until like I ended up leaving. So was it out of loyalty to your friend? Um, that was definitely part of it, but I, I think the, the bigger part of it was that, um, like, I'm not really like a physically inclined person, right? Like, I'm not, I'm not good with my hands. I'm more like a work on a computer kind of guy. So doing construction work, um, like, it was, it was hard for me, extremely. And having my friend there to, like, kind of help me, not, like, physically help me, but as kind of, like, moral support was giving me the strength to, like, keep trying. And then once he was gone, like, I just didn't have any support, so I kind of cracked. All right. So you like to work with computers. Have you ever tried programming? Um, not so much. Like w working with computers, I guess I should say it's more like, like I'm really good with like customer service, you know, answering the phone, using a computer for that kind of thing, but not so much like software. And do you think that you might be aiming too low if you aim at that kind of stuff? Definitely. Okay, so what's your ideal? Like if, if you could sort of snap your fingers and have a job or a career, what would it be? I think it'd be 
I'd be either like an advisor or a coach or a consultant or something like that. Well, coach, you got to play first, right? Yeah. So, a consultant, what do you mean? Like what? Um, yeah, that, 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 that is the question because it's so broad, right? Um, I don't know. Like, I, I, I'm the kind of person, like, I like to help other people. But, like, I'm in such a sorry state myself, I, I can't do it. So I don't know if it'd be like a life coach or what exactly it, Oh, yeah, it no, is I mean, that that's, I was, like, that's what, what, not really know? on the table, right? You, you can't really be a life coach if your life isn't going well, right? Right. Yeah. Like, well, what did you, my, when you were a kid, plan, when you were a kid, what did you, what did you think your life would be like in your early 30s when you were a kid? I, I, I have to be honest with you, Stefan. I never, I didn't have a clear picture. And in a lot of ways, I still don't. So why is your mom's detachment from life still running your life? That's what I can't quite fathom, right? So your mom had a bad childhood yeah. and she didn't deal with it or maybe it was too much to deal with, I don't know. But she kind of checked out of life, right? And are you still living with uh, her? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. I mean, like, we're so both, why, why are yeah. you still living with your mother and taking government money rather than producing your own value. Another question would be, why the hell is your mom letting you live with her in in your early 30s? But this is my question to you. Right. Well, the reason is that I'm scared to try again because I'm I'm worried that if I do what I want to do, which is to join the military so I can learn some discipline and have them hammer it into me, and I can learn how to work hard. I can learn how to overcome things. I'm worried if I try and fail, then I'll never recover. Well, I don't know what the upper cap is for joining the military, but why do you need an external? If you know what you need, why do you need an external authority to make you do it? It's sort of like saying, well, I need to lock myself in a room and not eat because I need to lose weight. It's like, well, if you know you need to lose weight, then do what you need to do, right? So why do you need some drill sergeant screaming in your face in order to develop some discipline? Uh, honestly, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I've tried like many, many times, like more times than I can count. To, no, no, you know, but you're, you're not a in a situation, but you're not in a situation of panic, Jack, because you've got right. three hots and a cot, right? You've got your four squares, you've got your roof over your head, and you've got government money trickling in through your mom's grizzled fingers. To keep body, bone, and skin together, right? Right. So you're kind of like on a morphine drip here. You don't really have to yeah. do anything. And, and you feel anxiety, of course, because your life is just dripping away and slipping away. And it's not going to take long, my friend, for it to be too late to fix. Right? You can't really, I mean, it's, re- it's kind of tough to, like, 10 years from now, right? Early 40s, right? What are you going to do? You don't have any real dating experience. You don't have any real job experience. Your mom dies. The benefits are cut off. You're on your own. No savings. Rent is due. What are you going to do? Yeah. So what you need to do is you need to slide. Hang on. You need to slide forward in time, and you, you need to look at Jack 10 years from now if nothing changes, and you need to listen to that sorry bastard, right? You need to listen to him. Because he's got some stuff to tell you. And now, let's do that. Let's slide forward in your mind 
10 years, right? And let's talk to early 40s Jack when nothing changes. And what's he telling you 10 years back in time that you need to do? That I need to stop leaning on other people and learn how to stand on my own two feet. And, and how emphatically is he saying that? Desperately. Because if I don't, by the time I'm 40, I'll either be so fat and so like, unable to, to function that, I'll, that I'll, it'll be too late. And I assume that you're <clears throat> overweight now, is that right? Yeah. How bad? How bad is it? Um, no, it's, it's not that bad. Like, it's not like I'm 400 pounds or anything, but I, I could lose probably 60 or 70 pounds. Right. So you got two jacks, right? One jack is 400 pounds or whatever, right? And is never going to have a life. It's too late. It's too late. You know, the world doesn't wait forever for you to catch up. The bus will wait at the bus stop for a little while and then it just goes, right? Mm-hmm. And listen, I knew a guy who, instead of venturing out into the world, stayed pretty close to home hanging on to the apron strings, as we used to say when I was a kid. And then his mom just up and died. And you know what he did? He moved in to her apartment, and he moved into the room she slept in for 70 years. And it was like watching a guy crawl into the grave after her and beg people to put the wet earth on his empty heart. So you got a jack out there who's got energy and focus and work, a wife, kids, who knows, right? Or you've got 400-pound Jack who has little choice but to suck on the teat of government disability until the whole system comes crashing down. And then what? Like, you can do almost anything if you're scared enough, and I'm just not sure. I mean, I appreciate you calling in, and I'm glad that you got some anxiety, but I don't think you really get the terror that you're facing. You've got this incredible gift of life. It's been granted to you by a miracle congregation of star craps across the universe, all coalescing in your unique capacity to think and reason and choose and act out of all of the universe of blind, dumb, frog-marching, domino-falling matter. You have been given an incredible opportunity. You know, every now and then... I'm walking through the woods, right? I love the woods. I love walking through the woods. Mm -hmm. I'm walking through the woods, and every now and then I think this. How pissed off the trees must be. Because they can't walk anywhere. (laughs) You know? The, The seed falls, and if there's just enough light and water, you get a tree, and then it grows, and it can't move at all. Deeply rooted, so to speak, right? I can stroll around. I can say, oh, you know what? I'm a little thirsty. I think I'll turn back. Oh, that's cool. That looks like an owl's nest. I think I'll climb the tree and see. Or I can, then the tree is just sitting there like, stuck in the mud, stuck in the mud, can't move. And that's a tree. Now, the rock is looking at the tree saying, hey, at least you get to grow and have babies, even if they're just stupid seeds you cast into the wind or fruit you drop into an animal's mouth so it craps your kids somewhere on a farmer's field somewhere. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm just a rock. And the atom looks at the rock and says, well, at least you're something. 
I'm, I'm like a bit of nothing. And then the electron looks at the I understand, right? So everyone's looking yeah. up. Everyone's looking all the way up the pyramid of existence to you who've been given the most incredible gift in the universe. Thought, mind, neofrontal cortex, reason, opportunity, free will. Now, if a tree comes and <laughs> clubs you half to death while you're sleeping, I think we could all understand why, right? Because you got this gift and yeah. you're just pissing it away, right? Right. So, in my opinion, you need to set yourself a date and you need to say, Mom, I'm dying here. Like, I'm like a tree that's not getting any light. I'm like a sapling. I'm not getting any light. I'm dying here. I got to go have a life. And you give yourself a date. And you say, okay, in 30 days, 60 days, don't make it much longer than that, in my humble opinion, I'm moving out. Full-on Billy Joel style, right? I'm moving out. Right. Now, once you have that, then you have a motive and you have a deadline. Because right now, you have a nothing line, right? I mean, the only deadline you're going to end up with is actually being dead, right? So you've got no need, no way yeah. to organize your priorities because you have no to-do that is an absolute. Yeah, I'll look for a job soon, but hey, Patch to Fortnite came out. Let's check it. You know what I mean? you got to just give yourself yeah. a date and say, i got to move out. And you go look at apartments. And once you start looking at apartments, your brain kicks into gear and says, oh, wait, we're on the move? Okay, well, I'll start giving you energy and focus and ambition and I'll uncork that terror of wasting my life, which will give you demon wings on your feet to walk through the skies and get to a better place. Now, your mom's probably going to resist that because you're home and she needs company and, you know, she married a psycho and all that, right? But, you know, sorry, mom. Your life, your choices, my life, my choices. You got to go have your own life. It's what she wants deep down, even if it's not what she knows she wants, if that makes any sense. So you yeah, just gotta it, have it, a dead. You just gotta have a deadline, and once you have a deadline and you're serious about it, everything will start to oil up and and start moving. I, I understand, and maybe I'm maybe I'm just making excuses. So of course, correct me if I am. Um, like the reason I don't just up and leave is because she's sick. Like you, you were talking about her, her, you know, passing on in 10 years or whatever, like it's, she's, she's really not doing well to the point where like, I don't like, if I, if I were to just move out like in 60 days or something like that, I would be seriously concerned about her. Like she has, you know, but you can arrange for her. Hang on, hang on, hang on. You can arrange for her to get the help she needs. You know, there are, the government will send nurses around. It will send homemakers and carers around. I mean, you don't have to be chained to your mother and not have a life. We pay a lot of money into, well, not you, but we pay a lot of money in taxes. And the government, yeah. like, call up your local government office and make, say, hey, listen, I'm moving out. My mom needs this, this, and this. What do I do? And they will help you. Okay. You can get her involved in a community. You can get her involved in a church. You can get her involved in a club. You can get her involved with friends. You can get her the support that she needs so that you can move out. Okay, that makes sense. All right. Will you let me know how it goes? Absolutely. Give me your number, man. 
30 days or 60 days? What do you got? Uh, let's say 60 days. Okay. Is it 60 days or is it, let's say, 60 days? 60 days. All right. I need you to call me back. The closest show to 60 days and let me know how it's going, all right? I'd like to see a picture of your new place. <laughs> all right. Thank you so don't make, much. Don't make me get all Fight Club on you, man. Don't make me <laughs> chase you down, all right? <laughs> All right, Jack. Listen, best of all luck, right, all right? Fair enough. Thank you. Thank you very much, Stefan. Thanks. All right. Um, auto screen seems just a smidge on the, uh, uh, on the random side. So let's have a, cho- a talk with uh, Matthew, who wants to talk about uh, family issues. Matthew, are you out and about with me on Free Domain? Uh, Can you hear me? Yes, Hi, hello. 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 Wow, I can't believe it. I'm a huge fan, Stefan. I'm starstruck. Oh, uh, well, uh, fantastic. Yes, I'm I'm a, I'm a fan of this call already. I'm a supporter. So what's on your mind? <laughs> I am a supporter, yes. Um, man, I am. Um, I learned recently that I got to get away from my family because, uh, you know, my uh, the matriarch of the family, my grandmother, she's kind of driven all of her sons crazy. And I've been taking care of her. I'm 28 now. I'm living in the house that uh, I inherited from her, and uh, I need to get away from these people. And I've come to realize that my grandmother has been using me just as someone to take care of her and to keep me around. And that's uh, long and short of it. I've been a slave to the to the money, to the inheritance. You know, it's been like, oh, well, you know, you're going to get a Because, you know, Grandma's got, like, you know, quite a bit of money. And uh, recently she took me off, uh, like, all the inheritance whatsoever. Like, I'm getting nothing. Because she got mad at me because I used some of the money early to I had to hire an attorney because uh, I got a DWI. Like I'm, I'm a bad boy, <laughs> and uh, Wait, I'm sober what, now. What happened? What happened? You got a DWI, man. Uh, well, I'm an alcoholic, and uh, I've been in and out of like mental, uh, uh, not mental places, but, you know, like rehab places, um, because of alcohol withdrawals and. Uh, I don't know. My, my, my father was an alcoholic and I inherited it. My mother. Oh man, Stefan, this is a hour long call, man. My, uh, my parents met in like a rehab facility and they were both drug addicts and alcoholics and they're both. So you know, you know how bad it is. I should have. Yeah. No, no, you do know. And you knew as a kid how bad it is, right? Well, I didn't grow up with them, but, um, I did see my dad die from them. Yeah. Okay. Did your grandmother tell you that your parents were addicts? No. Really? And did you not see them when you were a kid? I never. I haven't seen my mom since like 25 years, but I did see my dad, yes. Uh, I never saw him drunk or on just a, a couple of times. One time I've seen him. Uh, he passed out like on pills and alcohol and stuff. And uh, I remember as a kid, he was being dragged out of his house because like, he had started cooking and then he passed out and, you know, smoke and fire and all that. And I was like a 10 year old kid. I was like, I had to go save my dad. And I ran in the house and I had to be drugged out myself, you know? And then, um, then, and then when I was 15, I saw him, he was, uh, you know, I was like the second person to find him dead. Cause he had, you know, died and fell on the floor and it was pretty bad. Uh, then did he die from drinking? Um, I actually, you know, I don't know the official cause of death, but, you know, the pills or alcohol, but it was an overdose, yeah. 
I'm really, really, really sorry, man. That's that's a hell of a start, and you have my massive, deep, abiding, and undying sympathy for that. I, I'm that's just, I mean, that's horrible beyond words. Which well, leads me to my next question: Why do you drink, right. Matthew? I'm sober now, but uh, why? Okay, I, why um, did you drink? Um, well, I had a little, uh, I'm an alcoholic, I'm a genetic alcoholic, of course. So when I first started drinking, when I was like 18, so I was in the military, I was a Marine. I couldn't wait to get away from my family. I'm sorry, drinking in the Marines, all, you know, that's all we did. And, uh, I took it home with me. You know, I had some experiences in the Marines that kind of shook me up a bit, but never got blown up or anything, uh, thankfully. And I just took you back with me, and uh, I didn't stop drinking. And, uh, never got enlightened. Just party, party, party. And I made a lot of money. When I first got in the Marines, I got headhunted, and I was making like 40-something 40 40 K a year when I was 21 years old, and that kind of went to my head. And I, I was making like two grand a day sometimes. And then uh, I'd go out to the strip club and blow it all. And <laughs> This was long before I got you know, enlightened by the YouTube philosophers such as yourself. But, right, right. uh, yes, I just, and then like when I tried to quit drinking, the alcohol withdrawals were extremely bad. At one point I was in a hospital and they were telling me like I was at an extreme stroke risk because, uh, you know, withdrawals were so bad, you know, and I was trying to quit desperately. But how and, much uh, were you, how much were you drinking yeah. in your, in your peak? Um, I remember at one point, like my peak, I remember like buying an 18 pack of uh, a 12 ounce beers and uh, drinking that in, in a day, and then like thinking I got no beers left. I got to go get some more beer, then going to get more beer, and uh, passing out soon after. So I'd say at my peak was probably 20 drinks. Probably would be my max. Would be 20 day. drinks. Yes. Did did it cause weight gain? Um, not really, because for a while there I stopped eating. Oh, this the alcohol diet, right? It's that Billy Bob Thornton thing where you're like, how how can this guy like? Because he, he just doesn't eat, right? He just drinks and smokes, right? Yeah, yeah, and the cigarettes too. Yes, exactly. Right, right. Now, what happened to your career? Um. Well, I decided I've had a few jobs, and uh, when I first decided to get sober. Because this is actually my second BWI, actually. Um, sorry to disappoint you. Um, but the first time I decided to get sober, and I was sober for about a year and a half, um, I um, I decided that where I was working, like all the money I was making and the partying, because like where I was working in the office, like it wasn't like Friday, <laughs> Friday before closing, everybody in that in that place had a had a drink um, in their hands. So I decided I needed to get out of that situation. I thought I was going to get sober, so I quit that to go get a part-time job and uh, get back to, like, manual labor stuff and go to college. Right. Okay. Okay. Hmm? So, I wanted to be a... How long, sorry, how long have you been sober now? Uh, well, currently, right now, I am sober a month. I'm going tonight to get my month month uh, chip from the meeting. Good for you. Good for you. Um, do you think that your family situation has anything to do with drinking? Absolutely. 100%. When I was sober, I was sober for a year and a half after my first DWI. And, um, like what, what broke me was like, 
my sister's also like she's crazy in head she's schizophrenic and i've been taking like i've been taking care of i was taking care of her and my grandmother at the same time in the same house um and like she drove me like absolutely bananas and one night i just drove off to a bar and i couldn't take it and i was like man gotta have a drink so and then that snowballed over the past year or so until i got dwi and then I thought I'd get sober again, and that was a hard time to do. But um, finally was able to, with the help of the proper alcohol withdrawal medication and my friends, was able to sober up. And I had to, like, de-escalate. You know, I couldn't just stop. I had to, like, go down from, like, six drinks to four to two to nine over the course of, like, a month. Right. So what are the barriers between you and getting out? Well, I, um, to begin with, uh, I'm in the house that, you know, my grandmother pretty much said, you can have the house and the car or whatever else, whenever I die, you inherit all this money, but then now the money's gone. But the barrier is that, um, I need to, well, first I need to get rid of this case. I need to find out what I got to do to, you know, if I got to go to jail for a few months or a year or whatever, I hope, hopefully not that long, but go to jail or pay a fine or be on probation. After that, I save up some money, get a few grand in my pocket, and I'm thinking about driving and getting lost in the uh, Midwest there, flyover country, they call it, here in the States. I just want to have a few grand in my pocket and drive drive somewhere and start a new life. But the only barrier now, I mean, the courts and uh, getting, the money, getting the money put together. Okay, so listen, you know I'm not a lawyer, right? But I'll tell you this. If I were to guess the best way to stay out of jail is, first of all, you, you got to, I know you, you're on the phone, right, and, and there's a kind of toughness to it, but you got to stop being flippant about the DUIs because that's, that's really dangerous stuff, right? Dangerous for you, dangerous for other people, you name it, right? So right. if you go in front of the judge, I assume you'll have some opportunity to say something, at least I hope, before you get your sentence or before the end of the process or maybe during and just say, you know, I, my parents were addicts and I did not make the connections that I needed to make in order to not do these terrible deeds again. You know, I think about the people I could have hit. I think about the accidents I could have caused and it's terrifying to me. And I found this is this is not a sympathy thing. It's just a fact thing. Like I found my dad dead of an overdose when I was thirteen, and I haven't seen my mom in twenty five years. I assume she's dead too. And I've really been well. No, thinking, she's alive actually. Just to be honest. Okay. She, okay. Well, she so alive. she's alive, right? Okay. So you know, I've really been thinking Sorry. about these patterns and and what I need to do to break this pattern. Right, because so, I'm messing up my life, something fierce, and it could be a lot worse than it is. And if it's jail, it's jail, and I will accept that. But I yeah. just wanted to say I've really figured out that a lot of it has to do with just being in a messed up social situation. You know, drinking—it's not you and the beer. That's not—that's not the relationship. The relationship is you and everyone else who makes you need the beer. Right, that's alcoholism. It's right. not you and the and the, and the drink. It's you and everyone else who makes you want to drink. And if you can change your social circle, if you can change your social environment, you'll find it a whole lot easier to not drink. 
So you can say to the judge, in my humble opinion, that you finally kind of figured out the patterns and you were sober for a year and a half and family stresses and family tensions eventually had you dive down into that vat of booze again. And so you're going to strike out. You are going to remove yourself from all temptation. You're going to remove yourself from all the stressors in the environment that historically have made drinking so tempting and a temptation which you have succumbed to. But if you give the judge something that says, because, you know, two, you know, one is maybe an accident, although bad enough, two certainly is a pattern. But if you can get the judge to understand that you have made connections that can really change something, again, I'm no lawyer, this is not legal advice, it's just my thoughts on the situation. But if you can really connect to that loss, to that fear, and to that opportunity to not repeat what's gone on in the past, you might get to the Midwest a whole lot sooner than you think. Okay. Well, but you got to be I'm real a, serious about I'm, it, man. The judge has got to look you in the eye, and, and he's got to get that you get it. Well, I'm usually the only one in the courtroom wearing a suit besides the, besides the attorneys, so... But plus, it's not but, just uh, the, it's not my, just the tailoring, right? It's the attitude, right? Uh, of course, of course, yes. It's and uh, I am professional. I've been in professional uh, occupations. In you know, it's like out of the Marines, but but I'm allowing my uh, you know I'm deferring to my attorney. But I, I definitely understand what you're saying. That I need to please to defer to your that. attorney. <laughs> you know, absolutely yeah, defer to your I'll attorney. But make, you know, here, here's what I think. I, I, I don't I don't really know what it's obviously like to be a judge, but. I'm guessing it's something like this. It's a grim repetition. You know, it's like when you you put your, your kid on the merry-go-round and it's like, here they come again, here they come again, here they come again. I think it's a lot of repetition. I think judges are kind of hungry to see people who are breaking the cycle and who aren't going to end up back in the courtroom. And if you can give the judge that opportunity, you know, it might it might help. It might help. But yeah, listen, I mean, you have full permission to not see your family of origin. You have, I mean, this is just a basic moral legal fact in the world that you did uh, not choose yeah. your parents. You did not choose the family you were born into. You choose your wife. You choose your friends. You know, you choose your job, yeah. we hope. But you don't choose <laughs> well, your family. I'm trying to tell people. Yeah, yeah. You, you do, do not choose your family. And well, it's just been this, emo- this level of emotional terrorism I've been under since I, since I, was, since I turned 18. Like, you have to stay around grandma. You have to stay. You're the one taking care of her, you know. And nobody, like, well, again, well, I hate to give you too much detail. I know you got a lot of callers. Let me just tell you real quick. I actually, uh, like, back around when I first got sober for a year and a half, before, you know, after my DWI, before I got sentenced, I um, I actually had surgery on my neck. I almost died, actually. And um, yeah, we can get into, we don't need to get into that. But, like, it wasn't because of, like, an accident. It was something I was born with. And like when I was in the uh, being operated on, like I was in a hospital, no one in my family came to see me or even bothered to send me anything or call me. I talked to my grandmother, but that's only when I called her. And like my friends were there, none of my family was. And so that's bothered me. And I'm finally starting to realize like these people just want me around to like take care of grandma. And I'm oh, really yeah, you're a utility. You're like a, a piece of life. You're, you're like a piece of livestock. I mean, you're just a utility, right? You're like, hey, or I'm hell, drowning. You, you could be the barrel. 
when I graduated like boot camp, for example, in Marine Corps boot camp, and everybody's running up to their family, you know, no one was there for me. And then they expect me to do all, and no one was there for me when I was having surgery or when, you know, no one cares about my colleagues. It's just, you know, and if I try to leave, they're going to say, well, why are you leaving grandma behind? We gave you a house, didn't we? Blah, blah, blah. It's going to be. Yeah, well, you know, as, as they say, there's nothing, more, there's nothing more expensive than free. So will you drop me a line and let me know how it goes? Um, sure, yeah. All right. I appreciate that. And listen, best of luck. And uh, if if you got to chew your way out of that trap, man, put, put on your, your Bond villain Jaws teeth. All right. Well, thanks for the call. I really do appreciate that. Let's move on to Adam, who wants to talk about Jesus, if I understand this correctly. Adam, are you with me? Yes, I'm here. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. How are you? I'm well, thanks. I'm well. What's on? Uh-huh. Yes, I was just watching some of your video, recent video on the, uh, you're talking to the guy about the meaning of life. Oh, and, yes, uh, please, everyone, I, go watch that video. It's uh, entitled uh, Revelation, exclamation mark, and there's a little bit after that. But, yeah, I was very, very pleased with that. Yes, and I was, um, I, I've been wondering for a while, I mean, what um, your thoughts are on on epistemology and what what the source of, knowledge is what i'm not sure how to explain it you know what i'm saying yeah so for those who don't know the word epistemology refers to the philosophical study of knowledge how do we know what is true how do we know what is false and um what methodology do we use to get to those states and it is dependent, of course, upon our perception of reality, right? I mean, is, is reality what comes in through our sense data, or is reality a higher realm of which the material realm is a sort of dim, imperfect reflection and so on? This is sort of Aristotelianism versus Platonism, respectively. And, you know, it's a, it's a tough call. Uh, it's, a, it's a tough call because it's, it's very hard to imagine, like, let me tell you. So the guy in the call I was talking to in the video you're referring to that I just put out this afternoon, the video called Revelation, all the stuff that I was talking to was stuff that poured into my brain during the call from God knows where. It's the strangest, freakiest most bizarre and mildly destabilizing phenomenon when it feels like there's a portal within you that the words are flowing through like water out of a fire hose and you don't know where the hell they're coming from. And I know this sounds a little bit like, well, aren't you supposed to reason these things through? And yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you uh, you write down a song idea. You don't just sit there and hum it yourself and then like you, then that's the beginning of the process, right? And a lot of that stuff that I talked about in the video is stuff that I've touched on here and there and, and so on, but it, it just like it all it all coalesces and comes together in a truly unfathomable way for me. And I was just thinking, I mean, this sounds completely ridiculous, and I'm aware of all of that, but one of the biggest proofs for the existence of God is my own mental phenomenon, and I'm sure this is the case phenomena. I'm sure this is the case for you and for others who really sit there and think, okay, well, every night I have these wild dreams 
I get these ideas, I get these inspirations, I have these transcendent experiences when listening to Mike Bat while walking through a forest full of fog in the early morning light. The beauty and depth and power of existence and inspiration. You know, I have been doing this show for 15 years. I, I worked it out the other day. I've, I've spoken to about 4,500 people. In-depth, detailed, deep philosophy. Do you know I still get amazing, wonderful, new revelations, insights out of these conversations? It's amazing. I mean, otherwise, I, what would be the point, right? I'm just rehashing, rehashing, right? And that fertility, the fecundity of what goes on in my mind. And I'm not saying I'm alone in this. I'm just saying that I'm aware of it. Where does it come from? Now, of course, I can sit there and, and reduce it immediately to the material. Well, there's this wild biochemical blah, 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 and neurons, and I get all of that. I mean, I, I, and, and I'm not saying that's wrong. But I'm saying that that's not an explanation that encapsulates the true wonder of living inside a human brain. That is not an explanation. That's an explanation that I have because of ideology. That is not an explanation I have because of experience or even the science right the science doesn't know how the brain works so again i'm not saying that i'm i'm a portal to to wisdom or i mean i get all of that but that's what it feels like now i know feelings are not arguments and so on but they're also not unimportant you you can't live you know spock like man does not live by bread alone so to me the fact that there is this wild geyser of like i can understand creativity like uh Oh, I came up with a cool song or, you know, I just I sat and wrote down a beautiful poem or whatever. I can I can kind of understand that because that's kind of close to like we hear music in dreams and and we have images at night in dreams. So writing them down in a captivating way to me, that's all. But the idea that philosophical truth can erupt from a mind and then be validated now. Okay, you know, once or twice, we all have these, you know, we all have these bits where, wow, my dream came true. And of course, we all forget the times where the dream didn't come true. And I get all of that. But when it happens in most conversations, when it happens, when I sit there and ask a question at the beginning of a listener call, and it is not until an hour later where I realize why I asked it and how it pieces together, where I'm working in a nonlinear fashion to excavate and uncover the patterns of someone's history. It's it's a wild, wild, wild experience. And <laughs> I hate to say I give myself goosebumps because I don't view that as part of my identity. That's like the me. And so this doesn't mean anything. I just want to, I'm just, I'm really, really honest. I always want to be honest, as, as honest as I can be about my experiences. And I don't know where it all comes from. And maybe after I'm dead and they put my brain through a scanner, they'll find it <laughs> or something. I don't know. I don't know. But that, you know, having having a photographic memory is a wild capacity, but, you know, you kind of understand it. You've seen it, you can recall it, and so on, right? Being able to multiply Rayman-style numbers in your head, you know, you calculate it, you know, it's, it's a wild ability, but 
it's not fundamentally creative. Remembering what you've read, being able to multiply numbers, well, an encyclopedia and a calculator are not creative. Stuff that is pure creative without reason in it, like poetry or music, or the inspiration to write a story. But philosophy, for philosophy to be an eruptive, creative endeavor that then can be validated through reason. Epistemologically, I can't fathom it. Which means nothing. And again, I'm not saying that there are any conclusions in this. I'm just saying, since you have the question, I thought I would share what my thoughts are on it. Now, if you're religious, if you're religious, then you have an answer, right? So if you were to try and explain this phenomenon that I experience and you experience, Adam, what would you say in the context that you work in? Well, I, I come at this as someone who has never really been religious, but I've never really, I've always felt there was some metaphysical force in the universe that binds things together. But where I come at this and what drew me to ask this question was I've been listening for a long time now. I've been listening to various YouTube uh, channels, uh, Jay Dyer and uh, Fox Day and Owen Benjamin. And uh, they really delve into this a lot. Um, and they try to, with their religious beliefs, they try to use they try to use logic and reason to prove certain things. For instance, uh, Jay Dyer has tried to use um, the idea that that uh, the scientific method can't be used to prove the scientific method. Um, that uh, empiricism can't be used to prove the validity of empiricism and I'm, I'm fascinated by this by finding some ultimate answer that and this is what they seem to be pursuing so that's why I was calling in to you I don't really have an opinion on it I'm just fascinated by it well it is fascinating and to put on my Christian hat the answer would be that we all have a connection to the infinite fecundity of the divine, that I have within me a soul that is connected to God that will outlive and outlast me and is the prime mover or the uncaused cause of my deepest thoughts and revelations and insights. In other words, we don't have to reduce the creativity of my mind to the mere mechanics of material cause and effect because that's kind of hard to reason through, to kind of get at a deep level. So the Christians, they have an answer. Well, you, you have a soul and your soul is very creative and your soul has access to divine wisdom or access to its own wisdom that is outside the material experiences that go into the makeup of your mere physical brain. Now, Jung might have another answer, like the collective unconscious and the uh, all that. You know, it's not really much of an answer. It just pushes the mystery in a different direction, but doesn't solve it much. So, I would love to know what the hell is going on in my brain when these things are occurring. And my metaphysics and my epistemology tells me that it's all material. But being on the inside of that tsunami 
of knowledge which to me does not have much of a source is or how uh, how ideas and arguments arrived fully formed or how sometimes I feel like I'm building a bridge by driving across at a high rate and the bridge just unfolds underneath me and this is a wild experience. You know, I gave a speech at the 21 convention and I worked on two speeches prior and I ended up giving another speech. I'm sure it'll come out at some point so I won't go into the details here. But the other speeches were the speeches I wanted to give. And they sucked. <laughs> and then the speech that kind of came to me the night before was like, okay, that's the speech, right? And I went up. I had like three bullet points on a piece of paper. And I just talked for an hour and it was a great speech. It's it's a wild, it's a wild process and a wild experience and... I, I mean, I don't have the answer. Of course, again, metaphysically, epistemologically, philosophically, the answer is material, and it's the action of the brain and the chemicals, the neurotransmitters, and all this kind of stuff, prior training, and like, how does a jazz musician all work together when they've played together for 20 years? Well, they just know. They just write, I get it, right? It looks magic, but that's not how I... But the jazz musician says, oh, I know where he's going. He's taken it to the bridge, or he's switched from this key to this key, or after we've done it for a certain amount of time, he always cocks his head when he's... Like, they know to some degree what's going on, or people who create things that aren't validated after the fact. Like you create a song, I guess, well, is the song popular or not? That's fine. But you don't reason through and validate the premises of the song. You don't run through the syllogisms and the argument of the song or the poem. So, the mark of divine, the mark of the divine is what religious people call it. And that is the closest to the empirical experience of the phenomenon, which is not proof. Again, I recognize it. I'm very disciplined about this. I, I know it's not proof. But it's more true than the physical explanation in terms of how it accords with one's own experience of that kind of phenomenon. And I'm just, I'm not, I'm just, I can't just dismiss that and say, well, I'm going back to it's all pure material. It's like, well, that's a circular argument. I can't prove that it's material. I just believe that it's material because I'm a materialist, right? So I'm, I have to be really strict about that kind of stuff. So I appreciate the call. Thank you very much. Always very thought-provoking when this kind of stuff comes up. And I'm very sorry to, again, as usual, and I'll try and do these more often, there are a lot of people who want to talk. Hundreds of people who are getting a busy signal. I do apologize for that. But uh, yeah, we'll do another half hour or so. So, somebody says they love my work, which I guess means that they moved to the front of the queue. Are you uh, on the air? I didn't quite get the name. Uh, Riley Shore. There you go. How are you doing, Riley? I'm doing great. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I came from uh, the anarcho-left, and uh, I came across your work a few years ago, and uh, you've, really, uh, you've really pushed me more to the, to the right. Have I, though? <laughs> because you have no but i mean i'm not on the right this is this is what's always you, confu- i mean i know that i'm labeled that way well uh, what i what so, i mean tell, to tell say me what is you that, uh, hang on sorry 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 to interrupt so tell me like so where you were coming from and then what appealed to you about what it is that i was saying uh well uh i think the appeal came from uh personal responsibility which i think is something you advocate for and was that not so much the case in the 
uh, anarcho-left that you came from? Well, what I saw more so in the left is uh, uh, a feeling a need to uh, try to make sure everyone was equal and everyone was, was okay and taken care of. And uh, I'm now at the point where I think that uh, there's a lot more about self-reliance and self-responsibility that uh, is a big part of that, actually. There's kind of like a, it, it, it's a bit of a cliche, but I think it's kind of true, Riley. There's this kind of a male-female divide that women want everything shared out more equally, whereas men are much more into a meritocracy. Like the first thing that men do when they get together is they come up with a contest, right? <laughs> you can't just go fishing yeah. and split everything up equally. It's like, hey, you know, whoever gets the least fish okay, buys the, the beer. Fish. Right? Yeah. Did you notice that? I'm sorry? Do you notice that? I do. And you're talking about uh, something that I see is in the divide within politics as well. You'll find that women are much more to the left and that men generally more to the right. Yeah. I mean, with my daughter, <laughs> we go to play mini golf or something, right? Or bowling or whatever. Yeah. And one of my first questions is, okay, what are we playing for? <laughs> <laughs> Well, this is also, I feel like, uh, the, um, the thing that you see more and more in schools now as far as uh, everyone gets a ribbon, everyone gets a prize. Right. I think that's right. uh, much more and more on the, the female side as far as trying to make sure everyone's equal and everyone feels like they belong. Well, listen, I mean, so the fe female nature is yeah. developed to divvy up resources among a bunch of squalling children. And, you know, I don't know if you have siblings, but if you have siblings, you know... Like a friend of mine who has uh, two daughters, he goes, like they want a croissant or something like that, right? And he says to the croissant lady, he says, listen, I need you to have a high caliber laser and an atomic weigh scale so that I can prove to my two daughters that they're getting exactly the same size of croissant equally. Because otherwise they'll be like, hey, you got an extra bite. And ah, right, turns into a squabble fest, right? So for... Mm -hmm. For moms, you've got, you know, mom's got like, I don't know, three, five, seven kids or whatever historically, right? And they all want things equally. And if you don't share things out equally, man, there's hell to pay. I mean, you've got pandemonium in the house. You've got fistfights. You've got stealing. You've got tears. You've got anger. I mean, it's, it's nuts, right? And so yep. women are kind of developed to like, you got to just got to share things equally. You got to share things out equally or there's hell to pay. Or they get great anxiety, right? And, and they have a right to that anxiety because, again, they're trained to divvy things up among, uh, among toddlers and little kids, right? Now, generally, though, men operate in a world where the, the, the winner takes it all and the winner gets the prize and the winner gets the best girl and, and the winner gets the most food and the winner can support the most children and meritocracy, right? Because if you say, yeah. if, you're, if you're a man, like the women are handing out stuff that the men have brought home for the most part, like, I don't know, hunting or whatever, right? But the men, so the women are sharing in their own gene pool, right? The women are sharing among their own kids. Whereas for the men, if you share with the other men in the hunt, you're taking from your gene pool and giving the other guy's gene pool. Which is, evolutionarily speaking, not ideal. I mean, it can happen, of course, right? But it's not ideal. Feed your own family first, right? So for women, the world is children. And you can't have favorites, and it can't be a meritocracy. You can't really, like, you don't sit there and say, well, whoever sits up first gets the food, right, <laughs> to babies. You, you can't do that, right? It's unfair. So for women, 
and this is one way in which men are easily manipulated according to status, but women are easily uh, manipulated according to fairness, right? Because women feel uncomfortable if there's a meritocracy in general, and there's more, and there's less, and there's squabbling, and there's fighting, whereas boys and men are like, what are we playing for? Who wins? Who's won? Who's the best at things, right? I mean, this is why guys like Rubik's Cube, because you can get really, really good at it. I mean, I remember when breakdancing first hit my school. I mean, guys just went nuts on breakdancing. Like, they just had to be the best to the point where they, like, spin themselves into the bleachers and get a concussion and stuff like that. I mean, it's just nuts, right? Yeah. Gotta be the best. I used to be able to do the worm. Oh, really? Yeah, I did the worm a couple of times. But uh, <laughs> my, my balls were too big. What can I tell you? No, <laughs> Can't I do it again. So... I just I, I really wanted to say that I, I really appreciate your work and uh, where you're coming from, and uh, you're one of my favorite thinkers. I also wanted to say that I uh, really appreciate you uh, talking about the Nick Fuentes situation. And, yeah, uh, I, I don't I know much about that you. other than, hang on, I don't know much about that other than he wants to bring more criticisms of mass immigration. Is it to TPUSA and Charlie Kirk? And also that, well, just, I, just didn't he get the kicked out of a... Generally. Yeah, yeah, to the conservative movement. And Michelle Malkin is, is yep. working in that realm, although I'm not, you know, equating the two, but I know that she's been talking quite forcefully about immigration. I know Ann Coulter has been talking quite forcefully about immigration, but it's a tough thing for the conservative movement to handle, right? So, um, yeah, I, I think, I mean, I don't know. For me, you know, like I did a couple of Joe Rogan's shows and Joe was, you know, very friendly and, and positive. We had a good time. And then he invited me down one more time and it was just like, boom, 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 you know, like nasty, tough question, nasty, tough question, right? Which, you know, it's fine. That's kind of the game. It's not a, not a big deal. But, you know, that was streaming live with me without preparation, streaming live to like, I don't know, millions of people or whatever. And it was, uh, it, it was a challenge, right? And, and I've had a couple of gotcha, jumpy, ambushy kind of interviews and you know it's it's fine again sort of part of the game and i know i say some stuff that's controversial to some people so it's fine for it to be clarified and no big problem with it right so when people are like oh this guy might ask me tough questions so i'm gonna have him not come into the hall i don't i don't think that's really kind of hurts your own position yeah yeah, it hurts your own like, listen, I get that there are trolls, right? I get there are people out there who are just going to ask, you know, ugly, nasty men. And listen, nobody has to put up with that. I, I understand that. But that, again, I don't Nick, know Nick very well, but, I mean, he was on my show once uh, uh, about two years ago, I think. But, you know, I don't think he's a troll. I think he's got some tough questions to ask, and I think that those questions should be asked. And the fact that he's not allowed to ask those questions and that there's these personal attacks and deplatforming attempts and so on, it's like, dude, come on. I mean, that's 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 not how, you know, I mean, everyone's for the First Amendment of free speech. And again, I, I know it's other people's venues and so on, but, you know, let them, if you've got good answers to tough questions, then let the, those questions you be asked. Shouldn't, you should not fear what, what Fentes has to ask you. No, no, and, then, uh, and, and if you do, it's a Streisand effect, right? Because now, I mean, you know, just have, have yeah, the questions be asked. He's right? blowing up now because of this. Yes, and um, no, I think that, uh, I think those questions are there to be asked. And uh, conservatives need to, 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 to wrestle with and grapple with this issue that legal immigration is not 
as much of a divide as they think it is between legal and illegal immigration. I mean, obviously legally it is, but uh, nonetheless, uh, it is still going to end up with a very Democrat-heavy voting bloc, and you're not going to get any Republicans able to be voted into power again, probably after Trump, right? Maybe even 2020, but probably not. I think Trump's going to get in 2020, but don't take anything for granted. And so, I think he's going to get in yeah, it, it, it is a, it's a big and important question. And America has shut down immigration before, as has Canada, and it's something that needs to be talked about. And, of course, if the questions aren't even allowed to be asked, what that is going to say to people is, holy crap, I mean, maybe there is no political solution, and, and we don't want that. Is that's going to escalate, right? And we, we just need to have these conversations, in my opinion. I wholeheartedly agree. And then one last thing I wanted to say to you. Um, I saw on your Twitter timeline there a, a week or two back, you're talking about possibly debating destiny. I just wanted to say that I'd love to see that. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I got sort of secondhand reports of, of what he wanted to talk about, and it was basically just like a half word salad. So I don't think he's put much energy or effort or thought into it. So We'll see. I mean, I'm I'm working on a couple debates, uh, and um, I mean, it's, it's a lot of prep, which, you know, I'm not going to whine or complain about too much, but just in the hurly-burly of doing shows and covering current events, it's just something I need to carve time off for. But, okay, well, we'll, we'll put down your, your vote in, in the plus column for that, right? Well, I'll, uh, I'll definitely be uh, um, listening and watching. Okay. Well, thanks. I really, really appreciate the call. Uh, that was uh, very, uh, very enjoyable. Thank you so much. Thank you All right, much, let us, let's see here. I've got a little music here. All right, we are talking to Jake. Jake, can you hear me? Yep. How you doing, man? Uh, right, is is that you? your background music? Are you, are you currently calling from the auditorium of a movie showing Star Wars or something? I'm out in my car, there's no music playing. Okay, must have just been bleeding in from somewhere else. Okay, no biggie, what's, uh, what's on your mind? Uh, I want to know what what causes intrusive thoughts. Warnings that are not heeded. Warnings that are not heeded. It means, in my opinion, right, it means that there's something in your life that is dangerous to you or harmful to your interests, and you are not paying it the necessary or requisite attention. I, I don't know if that fits with you, but that's that's my thought. Could you maybe give an example? I'd give you my example, but uh, I'd rather not. Why? Yeah, I mean, you're pretty anonymous here. Yeah. Um, it's because it's not something I'm currently comfortable with talking okay. about. It's not like... I mean, I'll, I'll try to sort of hint you to what it is, and once you kind of sort of get what alley it's going down, I... Yeah, you'll, you'll get what I'm saying. Um, well, it's just like, and the thing is, these thoughts, like, they, they, they scare me. They're not like impulses for anything. It's just like they're thoughts. They're like images that pop into my head that make me sick when I think about them. But they oh, won't so stop. is it sort of like and, uh, uh, images of violence and so on? Violence is definitely a part of it, yeah. I mean, not necessarily violence, though, but, you know. But just unpleasant images but that are recurring in your mind? More, yeah, and these images didn't... St I've never had any kind of images, these things popping up in my mind since, like... It, it started, like, 
two years after listening to the show, after finding the show, and like I don't know why. But that sounds that sounds almost causal, you know. <laughs> like you get two years and but, then, right? Uh huh. Um, do you have anyone in your life that you think may not have your best interests at heart, or it might in fact be the opposite? Uh, one sec. Um, just you just said that, and like they kind of just walked out. One second. I won't, I won't keep you too long. No, it's fine. Oh, they're been driving away. Never mind. Uh, <laughs> that's that's almost like a sinister coincidence. Anybody in your life who might be yeah. dangerous, people driving up in the okay. But go on. Talk about sinister coincidences. Um, okay. Well, yeah. Well, what do you mean by like people in my life? Just like family, people around me, friends, like that kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, uh, as for family, I moved. There's. Zero uh, friends right now. There's maybe one over the phone, but basically it's zero. And then uh, everyone who's like in my proximity, everybody else is kind of foul human beings. And I'm trying to get out of this place. You said place foul now. human like, beings? It's, it's foul human beings. Yep. That's probably putting it nicely. It's bad, destructive people. And basically, there's. I didn't want to get too into this just because there's so much context I can't fill you in. Like, no, listen, I, I don't want you to talk about anything you're uncomfortable with. But if you're surrounded yeah. by foul and dangerous people, then they're going to be provoking a fight or flight response in you unconsciously, aren't they? I mean, almost continually. Right. Yeah, oh my God. Oh, I bought a six pack tonight. I shouldn't have done that. That's why. That's why. I got to get out of here. Oh, are, we, are we done? All right. Oh no! Oh, I mean, I don't know if we're done, but no, no, not not out of here. Like, as in, like, I'm, I want to get off the show. As in, like, I realize now it's what I got to do. I, I just have to move away from this place, find a nice. Oh, okay. Sorry, I thought I thought. Okay, this is something about I moved, a six pack. I, I know you you thought I meant that like something was going on right here. No, no, it's okay. We're all good. Well, but there is something. It's just internal, right? Correct. Tell me. Yeah. About so, it. so that would be no, you, you, your your unconscious is trying to warn you. That you are in a dangerous situation, and your unconscious doesn't stop that, right? I mean, like if you stick your hand in a fire, your unconscious doesn't say, okay, well, I'll give you a second or two of pain, and then I'll turn it off just in case you want that, mm -hmm. right? Right. Your unconscious is like, I'm going to make right. it hurt until you make it stop. And since I, and another thing, just to echo exactly what you said, oh, man, well, this stuff just comes on like a freight train. Uh, like... I I started like sort of drinking on the weekends again because I just hate living in this shared house that I'm in. Just to, you know, not like like shit face drunk, but just like enough drunk to sort of like watch a YouTube video and laugh at it and then go to bed feeling okay. Like, and I'm realizing now I shouldn't be, I should I shouldn't be, uh, beating down my anxiety here. I should be listening to it. I should be getting a room. So like I've listened to this show for. I've read all your books. This has been for like three years. I should know this by now, but uh, well, I, mean, I know what i got to do, but I'm sorry. Is this making any sense to you? Do I feel like, am I rambling? No, you're not rambling at all. It makes perfect sense to me. And I mean, I think it's according with what we're talking about, that there's a risk around you, a danger mm -hmm. around you. And the danger, see, the danger doesn't have to be physical violence, although it may show up that way in our mind if you have... Uh, say gory images or something, but 
the uh-huh. danger can be almost existential. In other words, it can be that you are surrounded by people who are numbing you to the passage of time, who are living this eternal childhood, who are going way beyond adolescence and stretching it out into the sort of middle age or whatever. And they're just kind of coaching and coaxing you along that path, sort of very gently. And, you know, most demons aren't like jumping out of a box, like a jack-in-the-box with some hellish pie on its face. I mean, most demons in the world are people who just kind of whisper you and distract you, and and if you try to make something of yourself, they'll just kind of lightly mock you to try and drive you away from it. And if you make bad decisions, they'll just kind of laugh and, and approve of those bad decisions, like it's kind of cool, like, oh, wow, I, you know, you fell down and you were drunk and it was so funny and, and like, that was hilarious. And, and they just try to reinforce the negatives and they try to inhibit the positives. And that kind of slow change, I mean, it's not necessarily that they're waking up in the middle of the night and they think that you're a ghost and they need to kill you. I mean, it could be that, I hope not. But a lot of times it's just this this slow undertow or like that boiling frog thing, you know, like it's kind of a myth, but it's a great analogy. Like the frog, you turn the water up slowly and it dies. But if you put it into a pot of hot water, it jumps out right away. That slow cook of your potential and your possibility is uh, a lot of times hard to see, but it's really, really insistent. Can I add something real quick? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, the thing is like, it's, it's kind of, I don't know if it's embarrassing or not, but like I'm, I like I I don't have any friends right now or barely any acquaintances. The acquaintances that are around me I keep like at like three arms distance. Like I don't want anything to do with them. I've kind of like un, my subconscious has gauged them as people who are just they're they're on the road to destruction. And I just I got to work on moving away from here. I did a lot of research trying to get to a different place just to get away from them. So I don't have any influences in my life like direct. Like I'm hanging out with them and talking with them and they're trying to put their values on me that kind of thing. Uh, But they are having an influence in that, hang on, they are having an influence, though, because they're keeping good people away from you. Correct. And and even another thing that I I know that you said before is, I I got away from the bad situation that I was in with my family because I I realized I needed to get away so I could start feeling my own emotions. Because when you say, like, when when you're around danger, the feeling of actual emotions will elicit like insane amounts of danger and rage in the people who have suppressed those emotions your entire life. So you have to get away from them first to start slowly feeling your emotions again. And if I'm here at this place, I can't, I can't feel my actual notes. So my subconscious is kind of like banging on the banging on the ceiling, like 10 stories down in that, like a metal room being like, he's not hearing me. He's not, I need to, make him panic. I need to make him worry somehow. So I need to shoot up some flares so he notices that he needs to get out so I can get out of this, this cellar. Right. Does that make right. any sense? Yeah, it absolutely makes sense. You know, the message repeats until you listen to it, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Or it just gets louder and louder. Yeah. Yeah. So is that a good yeah. place to start? stop you said no is that a good place to start i mean for you to sort of examine why this is happening and 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 start to act on it oh for me yeah yeah definitely i think we'll 
I, I, I can't get anywhere until I'm like out and in a completely 100% safe place to actually start slowly. Cause it's not going to fix everything like that. You know, right. it's going to, it's going to be a slow process. It may take a year. It may take a couple of years to actually start feeling my own emotions again, but well, no, yeah, once, once you start accepting, yeah, once you start accepting that they're there to help you, then they'll, they'll come pretty quick. They'll, they've been waiting, right? They, they, they're there to inform you and, and to guide you. You know, there's more spirit guides like, and so on. It's like, no, our, our survival instincts are very powerful and we're very good at figuring out when we're in danger. And I think that your emotions, it's not going to take years. I mean, once you start really listening to them, they'll, they'll, you know, it's not like feeding a squirrel that's it's taking cocaine or something like you'll, you'll probably get access to them pretty, pretty quickly for, you know, for better and for worse in the short run, although for better in the long run, for sure. All right. Well, listen. Let me know how it goes, and I'm glad that we were able to do something useful in in that call. That was uh, that was. Uh, <laughs> it's nice when it works out that uh, that well. All right. So let's talk to Jeffrey and his defense mechanism. What What are your thoughts on that? Hi. Can you hear me? Yeah. Oh, thanks for picking up. Yeah. Thanks for having these shows. Uh, it's really useful. Um, so my question is, how do you get rid of a defense mechanism? That, that was really useful when you were in a bad place in childhood and now you don't need it and it's kind of hard to just shake it off like you know it's not on your skin you can't just kind of get right. it off so well, okay but is <laughs> is your environment sufficiently different from what you experienced as a child it is yeah it, and and I'm, I'm getting better it's it's just that i'd like to get better faster i guess so tell um, me what's uh, what's changed in your environment from when you were a kid. Uh, well, I, I grew up without my father, and because my parents were divorced, and so I grew up with my sister, mom, grandma, and great grandma, bunch of women in my house, and, I, and then I moved uh, to the U.S. because my dad wanted me to study here, and then when I lived with him for four years, I just, I mean, he he always had anger issues. And he, he basically, he would like scream at me and in, in moments when I couldn't predict it. So, and then he would do the whole manipulative, like, oh, he would come back like five minutes later. Oh, I actually, I love you. And I'm sorry I did that. Um, so I think the offense mechanism was me withdrawing into myself and feeling less and less emotion so that I wouldn't be hurt over and over. And like Alan Living on my own, I, I have a lot of good things going for me. I just, there's, I, I need to like understand that I'm, I'm safe to express myself and that I, it's not going to happen to me again. But it's for some reason just knowing that isn't enough. Do you know what I mean? Wait, but are you still um, fairly solitary? No, I mean, I've gotten a lot better about it. Like, I, I moved to a new city and I've been making more friends. Uh, I have more friends than I used to, and I've been going to events and meetups and uh, different things like that and meeting new people. So I'm I'm happy with that progress that I'm making. I'm not I'm not I'm not alone in my apartment or anything. Uh, I mean I, I am, but I'm I invite friends over and stuff. So and uh, what's your uh, age bracket? Yeah. I'm thirty. Okay, so. Do you do you want a family? Yeah, and and that's one of my 
top priorities right now is, is finding a good wife and settling down okay. and building a family. Okay. Right. So mm-hmm. it's not, I mean, I would say that it's not quite opposite enough because, mm-hmm. I mean, you, you were harmed as a child and you have, mm-hmm. it sounds a little bit more, you tell me, of course, if I'm wrong, a little bit more like mm-hmm. acquaintances than deep and solid friends. Um, no, I mean, a few are, but I have at least, I would say at least one or two that I can really talk to about things Right. and they're getting closer, although they're not, they're not, I would, I wouldn't say they're like super close yet, but they are getting closer and closer. Like, okay. um, yeah, I have, I have one or two that I can talk about stuff if I really needed to. And what are the barriers? And like I, if, sorry. And what are the barriers if you have any between you and becoming a family man? I think I'm, I think I'm ready in general. I mean, I, as far as financially, I'm good. Uh, Values-wise, I think I'm good. Uh, I think, I mean, I, I I approach women sometimes. Like I I don't really have difficulty with that. I think it's partly. I I don't really <laughs> I'm not I, I don't consider myself charming and like charismatic. Like, and I think it's partly because I I try to I withdraw too much into myself and. I, that's partly why, I mean, that's partly what's keeping me from achieving. All right, so so hang goal. on a sec, hang on a sec. Okay, so so I would imagine that this is where the the, the barrier is for you, which is what the hell does charming mm-hmm. and charismatic have to do with being a family man? Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's, but you, you got to no. But if you have that as a standard, women. right? If you if you have that as a standard, then it means that you're just going to fail. Like, so let's take a silly example, right? So let's say I mm-hmm. said that women are not attracted to bald guys, right? Uh-huh. Now, some women are not attracted to bald guys, but who cares? I mean, most guys go bald mm-hmm. or balding eventually, right? And what does it matter? If, mm-hmm. if she's going to sit there and say, well, I'm not going to date this guy because something far beyond his control has put mm-hmm. him in the negative category for my appearance. And of course... Some mm-hmm. women like the bald thing, right? I mean, so so if I were to have a standard that says, well, because I'm bald, I'm not attractive, I'm setting myself up for failure, right? So my question is, where did you get the idea that charming and charismatic are what women who want a family are looking for? Because those things can be fun and they can be good, but they can also be the mark of a complete sociopath too, right? Who are very charming and charismatic, yeah. right? Yeah, uh, I guess I'm. Well, I, I know that's part of what being attractive is. Uh, I wasn't necessarily. Wait, wait, wait! No, hang on, hang on. Why? Why is that part of being attractive? Well, because if, if someone doesn't have charisma and and that sort of thing, then they're just kind of boring, right? I mean, no. You gotta. No, no, no. See, this is like, look, charisma is fine for speeches, it's fine for rallies, it's fine for, you know, big public things where you've got to made it motivate a whole bunch of people. Mm-hmm. But when your baby wakes up with colic for the third time in an evening, there's no amount of charisma that's going to solve that problem, right? 
Oh, for sure. Like, and also charisma can be, can be a warning sign yeah. for women, right? Like it's uh, he's a player, right? He's, he's ooh, hey, you know, like the cool thing that I did a video on a couple of days ago, right? So yeah. if you got what you wanted in terms of being charismatic and charming and so on, there's no guarantee that you would get the woman that you want. In fact, it might, you know, because a, a, a man who's poured his energies into being charismatic and charming has obviously neglected other things, right? I guess, yeah. You got to focus your energy on something, so, yeah. Right. So, the, the, for very, here's the thing, right? So, for very public pluses, the Bastiat theory of economics is very important, right? So, this is, this is you got to really carve this into your brain or NADS or whatever, right? Uh-huh. So, look at a woman who's got a perfect figure, right? Okay. Uh-huh. So how much time, effort, and energy has she put into developing and maintaining that perfect figure? Well, to develop and maintain a perfect figure, you've got to be thinking about it pretty constantly. You've got to watch what you eat considerably. You've got to do a lot of exercise. You've got to pick just the right clothes. You've got to spend a lot of time in presentation and preparation and makeup and hair and all of that, right? So this is like at least a part-time job, right? Yeah. So what you do as a man is you look at that and you say, wow, she's got a great figure. She's really pretty. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just a fine thing. But what you need to look mm-hmm. at is the shadow that is cast by that. The shadow mm-hmm. that is cast by that is all the other things that she wasn't doing when she was mm-hmm. developing and maintaining that great physique, right? It's like the, it's like the yeah. guys who've got really big muscles. You know, more power to them. I think it's fine, right? But I look at those big muscles and I see all the things that they weren't doing. You know, yeah. not spending time in therapy. They're not meditating. They're not uh, probably not reading a whole bunch of complicated books because I guess you can listen to stuff, audio books or whatever in, in the gym. But most times I go past those guys. It's like some thrash death metal explosion from Norway that's going on between their... <laughs> shaven heads ears right and again so so everything that is a big plus like there's this fantasy like oh you know like the i'm gonna be uh we go to a spanish restaurant and i can speak spanish to the waiter and then we go to a a jazz bar and i go up and play piano and you're just good at everything or it's all nonsense right when you when someone picks up a guitar and they're really good at it okay that's five thousand hours that they spent in their life learning their guitar and it's great that they learned guitar and it's fun to play but that's 5,000 hours they weren't doing something else, right? Yeah. And so women who understand that will look at someone who's charismatic and charming and say, okay, well, they're really polished. And they've really worked mm-hmm. at becoming charismatic and charming, and they've really done trial and error to figure out how it works and how it's appealing and so on, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, I mean, charisma and charm is kind of manipulative, right? Again, I, I'm not saying it's a hugely negative thing, but you know, it's a little manipulative, right? It's not. It's not. It's yeah. not the same as honest and direct uh, and authentic. Does that make sense? Yeah, at, at a certain degree, you're right. Uh, maybe what I'm saying is more like being more open, like not being as closed off, and being more dynamic and energetic. Kind of like you know, you're very energetic, which is something that I like about you. Like. No, you don't want well, hang on, but energy. you don't hang on. You don't want to judge what I do in public 
by how I am in private, right? And, and, and it's not like I'm a totally different person or anything like that. But you and I having this conversation, I can be, I can be pretty blunt and direct and sometimes confrontational in these conversations. If you were a stranger sitting across the table from me, it might be a little different, right? Because you could go nuts for all I know, right? I don't know, right? So in terms of sort of my public persona, which again, it's not like a false or fake thing. I'm honest and, and authentic and so on. And I'll talk about myself, but it's not the same as, you know, sitting with my family or, or friends just shooting the breeze over a decaf mm-hmm. or whatever, right? And and mm-hmm. so you wouldn't want to sit there and say, I mean, I'm not that you would, oh, I should be as glib and funny and, and chatty and whatever as staff, right? It's like, well, mm-hmm. this is a skill that I've, you know, worked and developed on for like, I mean, I was doing this kind of stuff long before I got into podcasting like 15 years ago. I mean, I was in sales and, and marketing and, and so on, right? And I was an actor, yeah. so you've got to kind of use that. So, yeah, don't don't look at me and say, oh, I got to be like that. Um, you know, the, the first night that I had dinner with the woman who became my wife, it wasn't like a show, if that makes sense. And again, mm-hmm. it doesn't mean it's inauthentic or, or dishonest or anything like that, but it's it's a different... I mean, I can hear this sometimes, you know, the way I'm, hey, everybody, Stefan Molyneux, blah, 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 right? That's not how... I don't come down in the morning, good morning, family, it's Stefan from last night. <laughs> you know, I guess that's not that's mm-hmm. not my cadence, that's not my... And it's interesting, because mm-hmm. I sometimes thought about plugging more just pure conversational stuff into um, into the show, and, and, you know, I sort of play with that sometimes, but um, a woman who is wise is looking for things other than just, you know, it's, it's like, can, can you be funny? It's like, I don't know. Some people can. Some people have that kind of cool sense of humor. And, and there's a lot of trial and error. And there is also sometimes uh, some cruelty associated with humor. Uh, there is also um, aggression that is associated with humor and that it disarms people. And there's mm-hmm. dominance associated with humor and that if you're very funny, you can dominate a conversation and... Uh, so it's like, oh, well, you know, women want you to be funny. It's like, yeah, well, again, your baby wakes up with colic third time in the night. There ain't no jokes that are going to make that go away. I mean, it can be nice to have a good sense of humor about it and all, but don't, don't, very, very important, don't put forward characteristics and just say, well, if I don't have those, I guess I'm just not attractive. Yeah, no, I wouldn't say I'm that extreme. Like, I wouldn't say I'm not attractive because... I mean, I think I'm generally attractive. And so, and I have a reasonable degree of confidence. I, so I, t- I took the big five personality test, just to give you an example. And I got third percentile in enthusiasm. <laughs> and I was like, that makes sense, but that's kind of, deject- it makes me dejected because it's like, I have a, I want to move that needle up. And I think it's, and I think it's where it is partly because of, that that mechanism that's still with me and maybe I'm just maybe I'm blowing it out of proportion I don't know but. okay let me let me ask you this though let me ask you this yeah. how would it be for you if there was nothing wrong with your personality if there was nothing that needed to be fixed or changed mm-hmm. now I'm not talking about your moral habits and I'm not talking about how you eat like just your foundational personality right Maybe you're just not a very peppy guy. Yeah. Maybe you can change that, but you're 30. So uh-huh. 
you're kind of 25 years past <laughs> the foundation of your personality, right? What uh-huh. if, like, what if there was nothing wrong with your personality? What if you're uh-huh. fine the way you are? What if you are unique and, and, in a sense, perfect based upon who you are? What if there was nothing to fix? Isn't that an interesting idea? Yeah, and, and I don't know why that makes you feel so. Tell me, so tell me, I mean, just be a little louder if you can, but tell me, tell me what you think about that idea that there's nothing wrong with you. Uh, it just kind of made me tear up to hear, like, maybe they're, maybe I'm being too hard on myself, you know. But it's an empowerful idea, right? Because I think it's true for most of us. And certainly, I think just about everyone who listens. And again, it's not like, oh, it can't ever be improved. Or I, I'm not talking about that. I'm just saying that, you know, we, we can always sometimes be a little bit more detail-oriented or a little bit more tidy. You know, I'm not talking about that kind of stuff. But isn't it a powerful idea to say, I'm... I'm just fine as I am. There's nothing fundamental that needs to be fixed. That's self-acceptance. Right? Yeah. The odds of you fundamentally moving the needle of a personality that's in its fourth decade, <laughs> not particularly mm-hmm. high, but all it's going to do is set you at odds with yourself. So I'll tell you my philosophy of personality and, and hopefully it will help you, right? So to me, philosophy, okay. like personality is kind of like a car, right? So what's the purpose of the car? It's the purpose of the car... Like a, your, your primary car. I don't mean like a hobby car or something. Like your primary car. What is the purpose? Get you from A to B, right? Now, okay, it's a little maintenance that's needed. And, you know, maybe every now and then you need to go and get the brakes fixed or whatever it is, right? But fundamentally, it's about getting you from A to B. If you're spending all of your time tinkering with your car, you have the wrong relationship with your car. Mm-hmm. And if you have a car that is not a convertible and you say it would be great if this car was a convertible, what does that even mean? Uh-huh. It's not a convertible and you can't convert it into a convertible. Now, the difference, of course, you can sell a car and buy a convertible, but you can't do that with your personality. Mm-hmm. Personality traits are buckshot scattered throughout the population and every personality trait and every personality combination has great value in our society. So there are some people who are very optimistic and those people are very important to society. But only if there are also people who are kind of pessimistic to rein them in and to ask the tough questions. Mm. You know, if some guy says, we're going to go hunting saber-toothed tigers with a spork. Mm-hmm. And they're very charismatic, and they're very enthusiastic, and they're excited, and, mm, right? Well, mm-hmm. if there's no countervailing personality traits around them in the people who are there, everyone just goes and hunts a saber-toothed tiger with a spork and gets killed. Mm-hmm. Now, the dour people or the, quote, negative people, they're there to say, a spork, what are you, stupid? You're not going to win that. Hey, man, don't harsh my buzz, right? 
He's like, no, I need to hush your butts because you're going to have a super t- saber tooth tiger with a spork. Yeah. Now, of course, the pessimists looked at the optimists and say, oh, they're so happy. It's like, well, they're only happy because they're kept alive by the pessimism. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the women, and this is sort of what I talk about on Twitter sometimes, so the women in the West, they watch all of this garbage media and they say, well, you know, I just find a multimillionaire when I'm 38 and I'll have three kids. Well, that's really optimistic now, isn't it? Is it impossible? No. Is it probable? No. (laughs) Absolutely not, right? So the optimists can really screw themselves out of existence. Now, the pessimists need to balance with the optimists. The outgoing need to balance with the inwardly directed. The aggressive need to balance with the passive. And we can't achieve all of these oppositional states in our own minds, so nature, so to speak has engineered our society such that we're supposed to have these kind of balance of personalities so that we have an ecosystem of feedback. So it's good to have confidence. But if, you know, the pencil neck weirdo tries to ask out the prom queen, like, I'm sorry, it's just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. It's good to be optimistic. It's good to have confidence but you got to balance it out with realism, right? And the realism can sound like a hell of a depressing or negative thing when you're riding the surf of your confidence, right? Yeah. So this is what I mean when I say, so you can look and say, well, I should be all things to all people. I should be both optimistic and I should be cautious. I should be outgoing and very introspective. Mm-hmm. I should be aggressive and yet at the same time, very easygoing. I should, it's like you can't be all these things. Mm-hmm. I was thinking of it as well-rounded, but maybe it's no, too much. No, no, that's, that's schizophrenic, <laughs> man. <laughs> you know, there's only so many people we can have in our heads before the, the boat tips over, right? Mm-hmm. You I are perfect. that I admired where they were like, you know, social chameleons, and I was like, oh, it'd be awesome to have that. But I guess what do you mean by social chameleon? That I have either, so. Sorry? What do you mean by a social chameleon? Like they could... They could go into different groups of people and and just everybody would like them because they were... No, that's called being a manipulator. And that's called having no integrity and never disagree, being so agreeable with people you're actually controlling them. Mm-hmm. That's a very subtle form of bullying is overcompliance. It's a subtle form of domination. And it's, it's having zero integrity, right? Because you will go into some mm. groups and disagree with them significantly, right? So this is what I mean. If you look at the oppositional qualities and say, I'd like those two, you are denying the uniqueness of your personality and its contribution to your tribe, your social environment. Mm -hmm. You are needed in the world exactly as you are. exactly as you are. And that self-acceptance is a very powerful thing. I am needed in the world exactly as I am. And you and I, while having different personality traits, complement each other in aggregate perfectly. 
You don't think I envy the people who aren't out here taking giant (laughs) risks in the public square to bring unpalatable truths? Mm -hmm. I was driving the other day. I saw a gardener. And I was like, God, I'd love to be a gardener. (laughs) (laughs) Whereas the gardener is looking at me and saying, hey, that guy, he looks like he's off to go and do a speech. I'd love to be that guy. Mm-hmm. Now, being a god, that would be great sometimes. I mean, it's not a good fit for my personality as a whole, and, you know, it's kind of a pipe dream that I'd be satisfied doing it, but it's, it's pretty damn tempting. <laughs> pretty damn tempting at times, right? Yeah. So, listen, the tears that you have are the tears of truth, of, of self acceptance. You are absolutely fine, just right. Just the way you are. Now, of course, I'm not talking about people who are strangling chickens for fun and profit or anything like that or, or kicking cats. I mean, I'm not talking about sadists I mean, because you're not in that category. I'm not talking yeah. about people who are like – I'm not talking about moral issues. I'm talking about configuration mm-hmm. of personality issues. There's nothing wrong. Mm-hmm. Not, not everyone should be like you and you shouldn't be like everyone else in the same way that each one of your organs has a different purpose to fulfill. Except for those weird mm-hmm. cloning kidneys, who I guess are just emergency backups, right? Or they were lying in wait until they could be transplanted to relatives or something, right? But it's really, really important to look at yourself and say, damn, nothing needs to change. You know, it's funny because, you know, it, it, you can get to that place physically, right? So people, people like, I don't know, make fun of my appearance on Twitter or they, they like cruel about my appearance on Twitter. It's like, I love the way I look. I'm very happy with that. I look just fine. And so there's yeah. no there's no place that people can get in and tear your tiles apart, so to speak, right? Mm-hmm. So tell me what you think of this idea that you could be your personality could be just right, just as it is, and and absolutely necessary, unchanged for society as a whole. I think it's probable that you're right. It feels feels powerful. I. My dad used to be tortured. I'm sorry? Did we lose you? Are you still with me? I, I, I don't know. Maybe it was like personality greed where you want every part of your personality to be great. Um, or, uh, I don't know. I mean, uh, I don't know exactly what brought that idea into my mind, but I think it's I mean, it was powerful when you talked about the fact that maybe I am okay. Just not maybe. No, no, I'm not saying not maybe. You're perfect. I mean, shy people are perfect. Outgoing people are perfect. Mm -hmm. People who are provokers, provocateurs, they're perfect. People who mend fences are perfect. We are all needed in the ecosystem of society. Everybody mm-hmm. is perfect. In a sense, the people who oppose me are perfect because ideas that people perceive as radical or dangerous or whatever, they're not, but they perceive that way because of a lot of prior propaganda. Yeah, they should be opposed. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about like the psychos, but I'm just talking about the people who push back. Absolutely. 
It's great. It's necessary. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm, I, I'm I'm I would certainly mull on that. Idea, I'm sorry. And I think I think I think you're right, and I'm going to keep exploring this idea, and and why it brought tears to my eyes. And, and you would uh, be amazed at how much right. energy you could release in this world if you're not feeling that you need to be fixed anymore. If people look mm-hmm. at my energy and my focus and concentration and all that, it's like because I don't need to be fixed. I don't need to change my personality. I'm not wrong or skew or awry or misstapled together. I am just fine the way I am. And so are you. And I would imagine the people who are listening to this. Just imagine how much energy you could have if you don't need to fix yourself anymore. If you're not broken, if you're not in constant need of repair or tweaking or having to go to the shop or just drive the damn car and get somewhere. All right. Well, thanks for the call. I appreciate it. I will close the show off there and uh, again i do really want to thank everyone for calling in i'm sorry for the hundreds of people who couldn't get through um i guess that's a supply and demand thing please don't forget to go to freedomain.com and uh, help out with the show donations uh, um, uh, cryptocurrencies and all of that are more than welcome uh, yeah, and you can go to the donate page there at free domain uh, you can go freedomain.com forward slash donate to help out and i hope you guys have a wonderful wonderful evening uh, happy november i suppose when this uh, gets out and don't forget again to please go to um, youtube.com forward slash free domain radio and just check out the show called Revelation! Exclamation mark. It uh, is um, uh, very, very important and very, very helpful. So, uh, yeah, thanks everyone so much. Have a wonderful evening. I appreciate your interest. I'll talk to you soon.